We invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 2. So we continue in our study of our Lord Jesus Christ through the eyes of the Apostle whom he loved. This morning we will begin our reading in verse 13, reading through verse 22. I know the bulletin says verse 25, thought we would hold off on a couple of those verses and focus on those in a few weeks. Next week we have a guest speaker who is, uh, um, uh, as we focus on Missions Sunday, and then the week after, um, we will have another guest speaker, uh, John Freeman from Harvest USA. And then a few weeks after, we'll come back and finish up John chapter 2 and celebrate Thanksgiving together. Uh, this morning, however, uh, our text before us, John 2, verses 13 through 22. So hear the word of our Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The word of our God. May he bless us with it. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, as we come and we commit ourselves to taking time to study your word, we pray that this would become an act of worship as we listen for your voice and come predisposed to respond as we understand what it is that you are teaching us. But Lord, for that to happen, we need for you to enlighten us, maybe even for some who are here to regenerate us, that we may be able to hear your voice and then live our lives in accordance as a holy act of worship. Bless us in this time, Lord, that you may make us to be more like Christ, that we would not only bless you, but all who are around us. This is our prayer, and this is the promise that you have given to your word that never comes back empty. We give thanks in the name of Christ, who is the word incarnated. Amen. Up at this point, the disciples may have had some idea that they had Jesus pretty well figured out. Their introduction to him was as the Lamb of God, and that suggests a gentleness and a meekness and a humility. The invitation that they received from him was, come and see, which suggests a, an openness and an approachability. And their impressions of him, certainly after the wedding of Cana, is somebody who was quite accommodating. 
somebody who's helpful and joyful, exciting, and maybe even somewhat of a, a party guy. So who wouldn't want to be hanging out with this gentle, meek, welcoming, approachable party guy? And then they come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus seems almost to be schizophrenic, an entirely different personality than they have ever seen before. Because this gentle person, now with eyes flaming and muscles bulging, is overturning tables and driving out cattle and people all from outside of the temple courts. They must have been wondering, who is this guy? Now there's a passage at the very end of C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader that touches on the subject and actually illustrates and enlightens us to an important foundational truth that we are taught in this particular passage. At the end of the voyage of the Dawn Treader, Edmund, Lucy, and, and Eustace are finishing up their journey. When they come to land, their boat is landing, and they come to a huge meadow of green expanse. It's described as so green and so flat that you can see nothing but the green except where the green meets with the blueness of the sky. And so the whole picture, every direction that they look, as far as they can see, is nothing but green and blue coming together, making one huge wall. As they look and continue to take in its beauty, they do see one little blip that is different. Off in a distance, they see a white spot. They look intently and they're not able to make it out, but continuing in their adventuresome spirit, they journey toward this and they continue to gaze at it. And finally, when they get close enough, they're able to make out the white spot, which is a snowy white lamb. And so they continue up to the lamb and they notice that the lamb is cooking breakfast over an open fire, fish and other things. And the lamb says, come and eat of the breakfast. Now, for those of you who are Bible students, you may recognize that Lewis is borrowing the imagery from John chapter 21 at the end of John's gospel, where our Lord is standing on the shore, and he is cooking a breakfast for all of his disciples. And so we have of this lamb a, a Christ figure that Lewis is not trying to conceal in any way, shape, or form. But the three begin to eat the breakfast and engage in conversation with him, and they describe it as the best food they had ever tasted anywhere. And the conversation was one that was wonderful as well, because they were talking about how to get to the land of Aslan, which is Lewis's term for heaven. But the three also noticed something, that while they were having this conversation, something began to occur. The lamb began to change. And in Lewis's words, that... The lamb, white, the white lamb, snow white lamb, flushed into tawny gold. And his size changed as well. He towered above them. And they recognized that the lamb that they had been conversing with was Aslan, the lion himself, who's described as scattering light from his mane. So the lamb who they had conversed with is the lion in all of his glory. And what Lewis is reflecting is the great truth of the Christian faith. 
It's the lamb who came to take away the sin of the world is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so all of those lamb-like qualities, the meekness, the gentleness, the, those are all very definitely Christ-like. But so is the regality and the ferocity of a lion. And Lewis is touching on this because it is important to understand all of the scripture of what Jesus is like. And it's an important reminder for all of us who would be followers of Jesus Christ because it's so tempting to pick and to choose certain qualities about the Lord that we like and decide that we will follow him for him. But we have no right to make him into anything other than what he is. And there are times where we recognize that the lamb is gentle and there are other times that we see that the lamb is ferocious. The disciples, when they came into Jerusalem, were seeing an aspect that surprised them when they saw the fierceness of the lamb. Because using the words from an old song from some years ago, they saw that the lamb was a lying, lion roaring with rage at the empty religion that was filling their days. The disciples must have been wondering again, not only is who is this guy, but what have we got ourselves into? This is not normal behavior. This is not gentle. This is not going to add to anybody's popularity. And yet we've committed ourselves to following this guy. They didn't receive the answer immediately. We see reflected in John's teaching is the understanding came over time. But the question that they may have been asking, the questions that led them to these answers, is really a good question. It's one that perhaps all of us ought to be asking from time to time. We claim to be Christians who are followers of Jesus Christ, but who is this guy and what have we gotten ourselves into? And I suspect that if we never are tempted to ask that question, if we never find ourselves in a situation where those questions come to our minds, it may be legitimate for us to wonder whether or not we actually are following Jesus or whether we've just taken the things of Jesus and baptized our only life as we would see it, which is a very common thing to do. People claiming the name of Christ, claiming to gather as a church, but nevertheless, that the only thing they're trying to do is ask God to just bless them in whatever pursuits that they want. But to be followers of Jesus is to recognize Jesus for who he is, to go where Jesus would go, and go where Jesus sends us. And some of the times that we follow Jesus, he takes us into circumstances that are not easy, that are difficult, that are troubling, and that do cause us to raise questions. And this passage is an illustration of that reality, of that truth that we need to understand. Now, before we move into the primary points of teaching, there's a couple of things we that probably are helpful for us to understand or at least just need to get out of the way. The first of which is why has John put this passage here? The other gospel writers all put the cleansing of a temple at the end of Jesus' ministry during the Passion Week, which sort of makes sense. He comes in, he kind of cleans out everybody, makes everybody mad, and so they want to kill him. <laughs> John puts it here at the very beginning. And it's troubling for some people and kind of wondering, so what's the deal? Is it at the end or is it at the beginning? Now, I've been one of the 
I guess, relative few that have been inclined for to, to assume that Jesus did this twice. And there are scholars who believe that Jesus did at the beginning, kind of went his way, inconvenienced people, irritated them, but, you know, they didn't catch him, they didn't do anything, and he went about his business, they cleaned up and went. But when he did it a second time, uh, a few years later, that was too much. And that very well may be the case. There's, there's not anything that we are definitively told in the scriptures to tell us, although most scholars, I have to confess, would say, no, that's only one cleansing of the temple. The other gospel writers have it in its chronological place. It happened at the end of his life, and John just kind of takes it out of the context, and he plops it here at the very beginning of his gospel. Uh, but John, if he does do that, if there was only one cleansing, it really doesn't create any problems of our faith, because we just simply understand how John is writing and how his writing is different from the other gospel writers. If, John, if there was only one temple cleansing, John, though, sees it as such a significant picture, a, a defining understanding of who Jesus is. He takes that event and he places it up front, particularly paralleled with the wedding of Cana, so that we would have a great understanding of who Jesus is. And then it provides for us a lens, kind of like the 3D glasses that you would get at the movies, that we would be able to see Jesus more clearly through the rest of this book because we have an understanding of both his power and of, of, of his passion um, that are very evident in these two stories here in John chapter 2. For some, that may still be troubling, but the reality is, if it is uh, troubling for somebody, then it probably just shows the inconsistency we have in our own lives because it, John's doing nothing different than what we do when we tell stories to our own children, whether we tell the stories of our own lives or whether we tell the stories of their grandparents or the forefathers before. We don't tell them all in chronological order, do we? When we talk about something comes to mind, hey, did you know that your grandfather, here's something that he did that is similar or appropriate to the circumstance that what we're talking about right now. And so we tell the stories that make the point that we're trying to get across that are appropriate to the circumstance. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if you had to go through chronological order? Hey, your grandfather did something once as pertinent to this, but before we get to that, because he was 35 years old at the time, we need to tell you where he was born, where he went to high school, where he went to college, who he dated, how he met your grandmother. I mean, that's just ludicrous. We would never expect that, and we don't have a problem when people tell their stories out of chronological order, because then we need to, we can put them back in. And John's doing that very thing here. But the point, whether there is one cleansing or two, that John is showing us is that Jesus is incredibly passionate. And there are two things that we need to understand here that I think that are revealed in this particular text. The first of it is this. Jesus is demonstrating to us the passion God has for the purity of the place where he dwells. We see that even as the disciples recognize in verse 17. They remember sometime later, it's kind of seeing what was going on. It was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so there is a passion that Jesus has. And as he encounters this temple, we see his passion for the purity of the place where God dwells. Now, for us to understand that, it's probably helpful for us to understand something about the temple. D.A. Carson, scholar, says that you know, we just, as Westerners, we just don't really get the importance and significance of temple in the ancient world uh, of all religions. In Rome, every temple was considered sacred, pluralistic society, but 
any desecration, anything against any temple of any religion was punishable by death. Temples were vitally important. And in the ancient church, in the Old Covenant, the temple was considered to be the place where God dwelt. God dwelt first, was told, in the tabernacle. The tabernacle moved into the, uh, was, was exchanged for the temple when the temple was permanently constructed. And it was understood that this is the place where God has promised to be, where you could, be, the, the, could meet with him, the sacrifices would be offered, forgiveness. Everything dwelt around the temple. But even with that understanding, we, we need to understand what they knew in the Old Covenant because when the first temple was built, Solomon, as he is dedicating the temple, acknowledges that while the, they, they've built this, and this is the place where God has promised to dwell, they know the temple can't contain God. And so as you, if you go back and you read the dedication, you see that Solomon is essentially praying, you know, Lord, look, we know that this place can't contain you. We know that your, your majesty fills, fills the cosmos and nothing can contain you, but because you've promised that your presence would be here. I ask simply that when your people come here or turn this way, and offer their prayers, that you would hear them from heaven. So even in the dedication of the first temple, Solomon is acknowledging while God is present there, it's not that God is limited to that particular space. That was not something that was, um, that was believed. But because it was dedicated to God, and God has promised to be there, it was a holy place. It was a place that reflected and requires purity. Now, it's also important for us to recognize that the temple is not even the original temple. The first temple, Solomon's temple, had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and then years later when Ezra came back, they, they rebuilt the temple. Uh, and yet when they rebuilt the temple, it was not quite as grand as the temple that had been built originally. They just didn't have the resources that David and Solomon had. And so when that temple was rebuilt in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're told that the, all of the young people, they rejoiced that the temple was finally built, and yet all of the older people, the people that were, you know, 60, 70 years old, those who had seen the original temple, were told they wept. And they kind of asked themselves, is this the best we can do? I mean, we built this to the glory of God, and it's, it's nowhere near what it was. And yet that second temple that continued for a long time still was the place where God had promised to dwell, his people would go and meet him, even though it wasn't quite as spectacular. King Herod, though he is a, an evil and a, a wicked man in all the scripture, he apparently had an eye and appreciation for architecture. And so during his tenure, he, having been aware of the splendor of the original temple and the second temple not quite measuring up, he took his resources, his government resources, and he had people commissioned until they would renovate that second temple until it once again was an incredibly grand and majestic place. And so when you hear that the people, when Jesus is interacting with them, and they say it's taken 46 years to build. That's the process. It's been decades that Herod had commissioned people, and it had once again been an incredibly magnificent place. And that's the place that Jesus came into. 
people every year, not only those who were believers, but sojourners, both Jews and Gentiles alike, would come to the temple. The temple was set up in such a way that there was an inner chamber, which was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could enter once a year, where he would offer the sacrifice, which was prepared by the court of, in the court of priests just outside the holy chamber. It was a second level that only the priest could go into. And then there was another level before that, which was the court of men. So the heads of family could take the sacrifice for their family, hand it over to the priest, who would then take it into the court of priests, and then the high priest would take the sacrifice in. And then there was an outer temple, outer court, with a court of women or the court of Gentiles, which people who were at the day considered to be second class, which was the majority of people. They could go, but they couldn't actually approach God. And it was in this outer court that the difficulty had occurred. See, apparently what had happened is as the festivals came each year, the city streets were growing and it was just kind of a chaos. The sacrifices were necessary to be offered, but people who were coming from long distances weren't going to be carrying the animals that were necessary for them to sacrifice. It just wasn't practical for them to do. So they had to come into Jerusalem and purchase whatever they were going to offer as a sacrifice. When they came in, they also had to pay the temple tax. The temple tax was not something, because the temple was pure and to be holy, it wasn't something that just any currency, there was a special currency that was able to be used in order to pay the temple tax. And so people that were coming in from a distance, they had to go, you know, head to the bank and exchange their money, and then they had to go to the pet store or wherever they would get their sacrificial uh, animals, and then they would make their way, and it just was chaotic. And apparently somebody had done an efficiency study and said, you know, we have this great big space that is perfect location for people who want to do this. And it's just filled with Gentiles and women anyway. And so, you know, we don't really care about them. And so they turned this outer court into a shopping mall. And so whenever there was a festival, they would set up the booths for the animals that would be purchased for sacrifice and the tables to be exchanged for money, uh, to exchange the money so they could make the sacrifice. Things that were necessary and appropriate to uh, the temple and yet done in a way that was totally disregarding and desecrating the temple itself. And so Jesus comes into that, and no doubt he'd seen it many times before, but as this particular occasion, consumed with zeal for the purity of the place where he dwells, he was compelled to act. And it's just amazing how Jesus acts. If you ever notice, Jesus isn't always a particularly nice guy. I mean, he says what he's going to say, and he really isn't concerned with whether your feelings are going to be hurt. He probably is not in favor of safe spaces. And I find it interesting when he comes, he doesn't look at this and shake his head in his frustration and anger, go home and write a letter to the editor so it gets included in the last word for Jerusalem. I visited your city recently and I was just um, shocked and amazed and disappointed that you would be, you know, so disregarding of God. He doesn't shoot an email to the city manager to voice his concerns and complaints and see if he can get a place on the docket so that things would be changed. He just picks up a whip and starts driving people out of this place. We see a passion that he has because his place, the place that it was promised, God was promised to dwell, had been polluted, desecrated, not necessarily by the things themselves, but by an attitude of irreverence and convenience rather than by awe and prioritizing a life to approach God and worship. 
And, and we're told as he's driving the people out, John's reflection says, do not turn my father's house into a marketplace. And if there is only one actual temple cleansing, the other gospel writers all record that he added to that when he says, my father's house is intended to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so whether he uttered that, if there were two, or if he only did the one, it doesn't really matter. The intent was the same, the purpose was, in, was the same, and the way that people were treating the place where God dwells was entirely disrespectful, and so Jesus in his passion drives them out. Now a good question would be, what does any of this have to do with us? I mean, you all came in. I... When I came in, I didn't notice anybody setting anything up to, for stalls for animals or selling birds and nobody setting up a table where you can exchange your cash before you put it in the offering plate. I mean, so we, we have this vivid story, but sometimes it's difficult for us to understand how we are to apply it. Traditionally, what we do is we say, okay, we see the story. All right, no sales take place in the church properties or at least can't sell anything on Sunday. We'll set something up on the internet and you can buy your tickets there. So, and while I guess that's a reasonable understanding and it's not an entirely bad reaction to it, it's really not what this passage is teaching us at all. One of the first things we need to understand is we're going to apply this passage is that this building is not a temple. And it has nothing to do with the fact that it's not complete in any way or anything wrong with the aesthetics. This building is not a temple. This building is a meeting house. The Puritans and the Quakers, that was one of the things that they were just adamant about, and that understanding is, is, is a very helpful one. It's not a problem to call the, you know, call the building anything, but it's, we need to understand the building itself is, is not a temple. And it wouldn't be a temple even if it was bigger or grander with, you know, Tremendous artistic stained glass windows and a pipe organ. It's not a temple. It is a place where God's people gather. We need to remember that the temple is the place where God has promised to dwell. And there are two passages that kind of focus us. There's many in scriptures, but I'm choosing two that will help us and move us towards our application. And the first passage is this, 1 Peter 2.5, that tells us this. You yourselves are like living stones or being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so it's reminding us of the purpose of all of God's people that he is knitting his people together, different expressions of them wherever, but we are not indiv merely individuals, but we're knit together to be a spiritual house, a house to dwell in which dwells the, the glory of God. His presence dwells amongst his people. And so it's important for us to understand that while, and I do this all the time, tend to talk about going to church as if the building itself is a church, but the reality is the scripture teaches us that we, the people, are the church. And I don't want to get into semantic debates, and I'm not going to catch somebody on that and say, and, and, and scold you when you talk about this being the church, because not only is it obnoxious, but then you'll catch me doing the same thing, and just, just gets just, yeah, really ugly and tedious. But it is an important thing for us to understand, even if we don't necessarily reflect it in our language, is we, the people of God, are the church. 
And he has promised to dwell in our midst. When we gather together, God in some way, not contained here, but is present in our midst. The second passage that I want to touch on is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, which deal with us as individuals. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your bodies. See, these are passages that are reminding us that while God had promised to dwell within the physical structure of the temple, that even when the structure of the temple was destroyed, it really only destroyed an architectural wonder. The scriptures teach us that the temple is us collectively and, in a sense, us as individuals. And when we look at this particular passage, it's important that we would understand that we apply this temple, apply this passage in recognizing Jesus' passion for the purity of the place where he dwells when we are concerned, one, when we are concerned about the purity and the holiness of his church, us as a people, and the way that we live our lives collectively together. There is one sense in which it's important that this day, as Reformation Sunday, that we are reminded of the whole intent of that Reformation which was not to throw out everything that had come before, although I suspect that there were some things that were thrown out that probably didn't need to be. But the passion that Luther and others of his day shared was that the place of God's people, the church that is assembled and gathered, and even when it is scattered, is to be focused on the glory of God as God has revealed himself and dependent upon God and recognizing both the glory that he has in his being and the glory of his grace that is given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there's an important aspect that as the church together, that in order to reflect what Jesus' passion is here, is that we are in constant need of continuing to cleanse the temple by making sure that we hold a high view of God's word and we order ourselves and believe in accordance to what it says rather than being among those who are making the word say what we want it to say. It's about standing for God's truth rather than what happens to be politically or culturally expedient. It's about recognizing the reality of God and responding to who God is in a very real way. And then recognizing that we are broken and inclined towards selfishness, we need to continually be renewing how we bring in our own baggage into the church, which needs to be cleaned out, and we're constantly being reformed according to God's word by the power of his spirit. Another way that we need to see that corporately that we cleanse the temple is by ridding all of the ideas that would divide us that causes disunity in fact, we see Paul addressing that very issue when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul is saying, look, you're, you're polluting the church by your divisive spirit. Some of you say, I'm of Apollos. Others of you say, I'm of Paul. Others will talk about, I am of Peter. And, and 
one of the things that Paul is reminding us that a division is pollution in the church. We need to be mindful of those things. Now, in one sense, Paul is dealing with the issue when we identify ourselves first and foremost as Presbyterians or Baptists or Episcopalians. It's not that the denominations themselves are evil, but if that's our primary identity, we're missing the point that we are all one in Christ. And to the extent that we are desiring to be faithful, we recognize that the name Christian is far more important than the other name. But we see it in more subtle ways, even within the one body where we deal with the denominational issue or even within the confines of a particular denominational church. And we become fanboys of certain celebrity people. And so we might hear people say today, I'm of Keller, I'm of Tripp, I'm of MacArthur. Any way that we take these people who are gifted and given to us to help us to gain the insights into God's word and we elevate them as if they become our identifiers or our markers, we are encouraging division to take place within the body. And we need to be very cautious of that. And how we're cautious is to be conscious of it in our own lives, our own tendency, and to recognize that we have moved God's gifts to us to a place of idol if they become our identity. And I suspect one of the primary divisive issues in the church today is not so much of I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos in a religious standpoint, but I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos in a political standpoint as we are divided over being Republicans and Democrats and independent and nonpartisan. And that drives churches apart. The people that disagree feel unwelcome in a particular body of Christ. Now, we have some diversity in our church, and for that I'm thankful to the Lord, but I, I wonder if it's actually comfortable in a way that it ought to be, or whether we allow things that are ultimately unimportant to define us in a way that drives us apart and brings pollution, and nothing pollutes the church of Jesus Christ like bringing politics into its pulpit and into its pews. And Jesus comes in, and he is not gentle about those kinds of things, and he would come in and wipe those things out, and he says, do not turn my father's house into a marketplace. He also says, don't turn it into a polling place. It's the principle. It's an important one, especially for us as believers in the next couple of weeks, and maybe, depending on what the news says, over the next couple of months. For that to happen, there's another way that we need to be very careful. That we would cleanse the temple, and that is that we would be cautious of our own lives. The best way for the temple to be cleansed in a collective sense is if the individuals also recognize this speaks to them, speaks to you, speaks to me. And it deals with the whole issue of personal purity. And Paul is passionate about that again, dealing with the Corinthians who make a marvelous illustration for us that we continually need to learn from. But in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is telling us that if we, essentially that if we want to experience the joy of God's spirit dwelling within us, then we also need to take care of the way that we live. See, we are reminded that our bodies are his temple. And therefore, Logically, and Paul goes through this whole thing, it, it makes sense that if our bodies are the temple, then we do not engage our bodies in things that would be desecrating to the temple. How we act 
matters. We don't involve ourselves in activities that would be that that the Lord Himself would not be present in. Paul says that this is such an issue. He braces it again in, in, in to the Romans when he says, "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers." by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And so there is a sense in which we, recognizing our own designation as being a temple, and the tendency that we have of becoming polluted and corrupt, or at least dirt seeps in, and therefore needing to be cleaned out, need to be aware of the way that we live our lives, because our lives are a temple. God is present within all who believe by his Holy Spirit. Now I can imagine in someone's mind there's this objection. Well, that doesn't sound much like grace. I mean, grace knows that we're messed up and it forgives all that stuff and this tediousness of watching the way that I live. We need to understand that grace is for more than forgiveness. See, the power of the gospel and the power of grace, it certainly brings forgiveness. It also brings freedom. It also brings the power to live in a way that glorifies God. It enables you to do what God wants you to do, even if it just seems difficult or is hard or we're broken and we're not so naturally inclined. God's grace will enable us to die to the sin and enable us to live for righteousness. And that means his grace being at work within us points out what is difficult for me to do and how I bring pollution into the body of Christ or associate my life in a way that is not appropriate. Not only can I repent of that, but God promises he's at work in me and he will continue to be at work in me until that work is done that my life might reflect the purity, not only that he demands, but that he demonstrates in the person of Christ himself. Our lives will grow until they reflect Jesus Christ. But it doesn't happen automatically. We need to be conscious of that. And Jesus here, reminding us of the aspects of the temple, having cleansed them out, says, be aware, individually and corporately, and don't let the impurity invade my church. There's one other thing that we need to look at as well. I'm not going to take, dwell on it very long, but I'd be negligent if I didn't point this out. The first point is that Jesus' action here demonstrates God's passion for the purity of the place where he dwells. The explanation that Jesus gives to, the, to the, those who ask him declares the end of religion as we know it. It's interesting that the people, they come to Jesus after he has done this and the first thing they ask him, we see it in verse 18. What sign do you show for doing these things? In other words, so what trick or what miracle are you going to do? This was kind of inconvenient. This upset everybody. You kind of messed things up. If you want to make things right, do a trick. If we enjoy it, maybe we'll listen to you anymore. Maybe we'll overlook this thing that you have done. And Jesus, who up to this point has been hesitant to do any signs or let anybody know. He says, kind of like Bill Engvall, here's your sign, but totally different sign than you would get from the uh, blue collar comedy tour. He says, tear this temple down and I'll build it back up in three days. Remember, he's standing in the temple courts. This thing that 
had been rebuilt, but then been under renovation for quite some time. And, and they just said, you've got to be kidding me. It's been 46 years, taken 46 years, and that's just a renovation. And you're going to build it up in three days. And it's not hard to imagine that their, their reactions, their emotional reactions, which is, this guy's just nuts. He's not worth listening to. And yet the disciples said, they realized later, doesn't seem to be at the same initial at the time, but they realized later he was talking about the temple of his own body. There's a British missionary named Leslie Newbigin is also a scholar and a commentator, and he has a tremendous insight. And if you don't remember anything else that I say today, this is important. Ironically, the most important thing I say is not even my own. Um, But Newbigin says this, in saying this about tearing down the temple, Jesus was declaring the end of religion. You may wonder, what does Newbigin mean by that? And I think it's very simple in this sense. What he is declaring, Jesus is declaring, and Newbigin is observing is this, is that all the religious systems and all the rituals and all the hoops and activities that people do and had done, even in line with prescription of the law, in order to make themselves right to be able to go to God, or that they had an idea that they had to go through a human mediator to even approach God. When Jesus said, tear down this temple, in three days, I will build it back up. He's saying, that's all now finished. He was pointing out that the reality is that he had come to fulfill all of the rituals, and he had done that. All of the laws, all of the promises were embodied in him, and when you tear him down and the brokenness, because he has assumed our sin, which is the brokenness of all of those rituals and rules, when you tear him down, everything is dead. But when he builds it back up through his resurrection, there's a new game and a new standard. And the new standard is embodied in his person and his work, which is accomplished in the very thing that he's pointing to when he says, tear it down and I will build it back up. He's reminding us that the hope of all people, us and for the entire world, is not rooted in whether we do certain things or even how well we purify ourselves so that we don't pollute the body of Christ or the, or the temple or the church. But everything is rooted in how well he has done what he was called to do in his death through which we died to our sin and in his rising up again through which he gave us reason to have hope and faith in what he has accomplished. Everything is now embodied in him and all of religion is not about our ritual but about our relationship with that person of Jesus Christ. It is the power of the gospel that is at work and that has been bearing fruit everywhere as long as we remember the reality of the gospel and don't go drifting into religious rituals again as we are so prone to do. I'm just going to finish with this. It's different than I thought I would, but this morning when I woke up, I saw a tweet by a guy who was my youth pastor when I was in high school, Scotty Smith, who wrote this. Reformation Sunday, the day we remember how easily we forget the gospel of God's all-saving, knee-buckling, heart-gladdening, sovereign grace. 